Moscow Olympic boycott 40 years on. Hello everyone and welcome to this edition of ATR Radio. I'm Ed Hula. 40 years ago this week, the U.S. Olympic Committee, as it was known at that time, voted to keep the U.S. out of the 1980 Olympics in Moscow. Following the wishes of President Jimmy Carter, the move was supposed to be retaliation to the Soviet Union over the invasion of Afghanistan in December of 1979. Over the four months that followed, the Olympics became a bouncing ball in the court of international politics. Leaders of the USOC said they could not resist the wishes of their government and President Carter. On April 12, 1980, the USOC voted to stay home from the Moscow Games. The U.S. had some company. 65 nations chose not to participate in one way or another in Moscow, but there were eight countries that did send teams to compete. All of this controversy happened with the 1980 Winter Olympics going on in Lake Placid in February. So it was a hectic year for our guests on today's edition of Around the Rings Radio. Mike Moran, who had just joined the USOC in Colorado Springs two years before as head of media, that was a post he held for more than 20 years to follow. And our second guest was one of the leading protagonists in the struggle to block the USOC from boycotting Moscow. Anita de France, who had won a bronze medal in rowing at the 1976 Olympics, was hoping to return to the Games in 1980 to improve on that performance. But instead of training for the Olympics in the first months of 1980, she was practicing her skills as a new lawyer, arguing on behalf of athletes who believed sport should be above politics. De France went to court. She appeared before the USOC, as well as before decision makers in Washington. But she was unable to prevail in this contest. Anita de France, now an IOC member, joins us from her home in Los Angeles, while Mike Moran is with us from Colorado, Colorado Springs, where he's lived since retiring from the USOC. Both of you, thank you for joining us on Around the Rings Radio today. Glad to be thank here, you. Ed. It's a pleasure. First of all, um, this is a boycott that we're talking about, but originally uh, President Carter was calling for the U.S. or for, for the Olympics to be moved away from Moscow and preferably sent to Athens, Greece. Isn't that right, Mike? You know, Ed, my memory is fairly good, but I know he wanted the games moved, but I don't remember particularly uh, that he had uh, another city in, in mind, uh, be that as it may, moving the games that late in the uh, schedule was preposterous to begin with. And Anita de France, you were at that time, I guess, getting ready, setting your sights on, on Moscow, not an epic battle about whether the games would be held or, or boycotted. That is correct. I had left my law practice um, in Philadelphia to move to Princeton to train with uh, under the head coach who was at Princeton. He'd be the head coach for the U.S. women's rowing team and uh, also to train with my partner who was getting her uh, master's degree at uh, Princeton in engineering. So it was easier for me to move as hard as it was than for, for her to change. Uh, a lot of athletes were making decisions like that and had for the previous number of years. And uh, this is the time that we found our own way to the Games. We financed our own uh, appearances and, and, and getting to the point where you could be selected by the team. So it was very purposeful. Every athlete had to make those decisions. How to do that? And my goal was to have no regrets. 1980 was the end of my competing uh, row, pardon the pun, and uh, uh, that was going to be it, come what might. And in 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 December 1979, Afghanistan is invaded by the Soviet Union. Was was there any any talk about boycott or moving the games or any action against the Olympics as a result of that immediately? Anita, did you think in 
in your training and your preparation for Moscow that this invasion signaled anything untoward towards the Olympics uh, in six or seven months? No, um, let's see. I, I, I recall being at a friend's birthday party, and uh, the president, you know, it was breaking news, the president, something we've gotten way too used to these days. But So it was un, unusual for that. So I went over near the TV to, to listen in, and among the things I heard him say was, well, if they don't leave Afghanistan, we will not send our spectators or athletes and what immediately came to me, mind was, what mean we won't send? You know, not a penny of federal, state, local government yeah. uh, money had supported us. What do you mean we? And what about the spectators? Nobody sends spectators, they send themselves. So I thought, oh dear, this could be a problem because unfortunately the President of the United States seems to have very little knowledge about the Olympic movement. And what was the reaction in Colorado Springs, Mike Moran, when the invasion happened and talk of the Olympics as a as a cultural in diplomacy was starting to be raised. And as I remember, the president made that definitive statement uh, in January. And we were just about to ship everything to Lake Placid for the uh, 1980 Olympic Winter Games. Um, and you have to realize that the United States Olympic Committee of late 1979 and early 1980 bears no resemblance to the organization now. Um, only 10 employees had come from New York to Colorado Springs in the summer of 1978 when Olympic House opened. We had a tiny staff. We had very little presence in Washington uh, no government relations office per se. And, you know, compared to, there's no comparison between the budgets of the two organizations now. Um, we were confused, but we, we were in place in Lake Placid, and all of a sudden, while we were there, uh, one or two State Department people started showing up, getting into our uh, offices, talking to Colonel Don Miller, our executive director, and it uh, obviously disturbed everybody, but uh, we had a games, and we had a great team to put out there um, in Lake Placid. But did you have any feeling that this was going to erupt into a, a big battle at that time? Was there any preparation the USOC was making to deal with this, or was this just one of those things that was developing on an ad hoc basis day after day. It was developing day after day, and I'm not sure that we all took it very seriously at the beginning. I think we were given some assurances by some, some people that we had connections with in the government uh, that it was likely that uh, um, it, would, it would result in the Soviets doing something or the IOC doing something itself, which, of course, was not going to happen. But it... it it really didn't affect us um, as much as it was going to in the weeks ahead because of the games and, and how much effort it took to, to take care of our athletes and prepare them and, and put them on the ice and the snow and the, and, and the venues in, in Lake Placid. But it was always in the back of our minds. But, we, you know, it was a different media uh, situation. There was no cable television. There was no Internet we were, we were, and Lake Placid, as Anita well remembers, is really out in the country, and uh, communication was nothing like there is now. We were left uh, really inadequately prepared as, time, as, uh, as things went on. The, the Cyrus Vance and his speech before the IOC actually called for the IOC to move the Olympics to abandon Moscow as a host of the games and it didn't go over very well at the IOC session well I was not there but it's such a laughable idea it showed again the low low level of understanding uh, we have we love the games in this country this country provides more support for the Olympic Games uh, than any other than the rest of the countries in the world put together so we love the games, but we have very little understanding of what it takes to be an Olympian. 
to make the team, one of the hardest team in the world to make, teams in the world to make, or how much it takes to put on the games. There's just such a level of understanding. You can't just move them in six months. We're working hard to move them in a year right now, but uh, six months to another city, impossible. Now, apparently the appeal of Soviet dissident Andrei Sakharov in January, I'm seeing, apparently tipped the U.S. towards the boycott as opposed to moving the Olympics from Moscow as a remedy. Um, when did you get the feeling that there was, uh, that somebody was serious about trying to bring a boycott together? Uh, when did the U.S. Olympic Committee feel that pressure, Mike? Well, Ed, um, we had State Department representatives uh, irritating and bothering us in Lake Placid, but it didn't really become apparent until we, of course, we, we then, the president sent a plane and flew the Winter Olympic team to Washington to the White House for a celebration. And it was uh, the typical thing. He posed for pictures with the athletes. The, the athletes were fed. Uh, pictures were taken and all of that. And then the team dispersed. And uh, the leadership of the USOC uh, went back to Colorado Springs. And that's when it became very apparent that this was going to be very serious and that a boycott uh, was likely. Uh, I remember getting a call almost every day from a woman in the State Department uh, gleefully telling me that two or three other nations had joined the call for a boycott. Like I had some sort of board up on the wall and I could, you know, uh, X off the names. But we had so many other problems. Uh, it developed um, the structure of the U.S. Olympic Committee at that time was only about two years old from the Amateur Sports Act of 1978. And we had all these individual governing bodies instead of the old AAU uh, situation or the NCAA uh, friction with the USOC. And as time went on, um, we we saw cracks in in the in the resolve of the organizations themselves. Some of the governing bodies indicated that they felt very comfortable and uh, patriotic about observing a boycott. Other other uh, national governing bodies absolutely wanted to go. Uh, and the same could be said for the athletes. There were senior athletes that uh, spoke openly about wanting to support the president's uh, order, and there were athletes who uh, took a stance against it. And uh, the USOC was in a constant state of friction because we were split, and uh, it, it was also very political. So the U.S. Olympic Committee had no stated position on it. You had some athletes who wanted to go, some who wanted to stay, and there was, there was no, no consensus there. Anita? Yeah, uh, we talk about the U.S. Olympic Committee as a thing that every athlete knew. Most athletes have no relationship with the U.S. Olympic Committee until they make the team. So, right. it, as, as Mike pointed out, these, these new groups focusing on their own sport only, there'd never been a House of Delegates meeting under this new format. So the people coming to that meeting had various levels of understanding of what was going to be done on April 12th. And it was just, as Mike said, it's a whole different time. But the good thing about it and the thing that I'm so proud of the USOC, now USOPC, doing was we had an Athletes Advisory Council that started uh, 1990, sorry, 1973. And um, through that AAC, I was elected to serve on the board and elected to serve on the executive, well, it was called the Administrative Committee, but it was essentially the executive board at that time. So we had access, the athletes had access to the decision-making. And that, in my opinion, made a huge difference, but not enough, ultimately, unfortunately. Anita, how did you get involved in the, in the uh, opposition to the boycott? You were one of the ringleaders in getting, uh, getting the athletes together. How did that come together for you? 
Well, the Athletes Advisory Council was the easiest answer. Um, I had testified before Congress on the Ted Stevens Amateur and Olympic Sports Act of 1978, so I knew what was in it. I'd been part of getting the fight between the NC2A and the USOC um, slash AAU uh, to, to, to bring the parties together so we had a constitution and the Ted Stevens Act didn't step on the NC2A. So I knew what it was about, and I knew that it said nothing about keeping the team at home except when their lives would be in danger. That was the only bar. And thus, the stuff about because the president of the United States, who I honor and appreciate, uh, says that we won't go, wait a minute, where was we? And this is what got me probably the most attention. I said, where was we when I was out freezing a, a part of my anatomy last winter? What do you mean we won't go? And having said that, I guess more clearly than other athletes, uh, people started focusing on what I was saying. So after the after the Winter Olympics ended in Lake Placid, the uh, debate uh, grew, um, reached a crescendo, I guess, in April with this meeting in Colorado Springs of the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, what was that meeting like? Uh, you were there, Anita. Mike Moran, you were there. I guess corralling. Was there was there a great deal of press attention at that meeting? Yeah, there there was. Uh, it had become, of course, a major story by that time, and a lot of uh, a lot of things had taken place prior to that uh, April twelfth meeting. Mm-hmm. The Carter administration. We began hearing uh, from Washington that Congress would take a look at our tax deductible situation for donations. Colonel Miller told me in his home one night that he had actually received threats about his military retirement benefits if the USOC did not um, succumb and roll over to the president's wishes. We also, the, the Olympic Training Center, where Olympic House was headquartered there in Colorado Springs, was the old Ant Air Force Base. And a, par- and a portion of it after we had been given that land by the city, was still owned by the Defense Department. And we were, we were, it was mentioned to us subtly that that property uh, could be taken back. Um, and also, the president's, Anita talked about the president saying we and all of that. I wrote when I was lo- looking back into this that he had changed his theme and his rationale for the boycott from whatever it was in the beginning to a matter of national security, which was a sobering effect. I heard that there is some sort of meeting in the White House briefing room with Carter and his generals with uh, uh, people from the U.S. Olympic Committee are involved with this. And uh, the quote that I hear from that is that we need to teach those Ruskies a lesson was apparently one of the takeaways from this meeting. Did that happen? Were you there for that, Anita or Mike? Any witness to that? No, I was already the enemy. They wanted me nowhere near the White House. I did go to that one briefing, uh, not that one. There was Well, I went to another briefing, but not that one for sure. And prior to the April 12th meeting, there were, there were one or two meetings uh, with representatives of the administration in Colorado Springs with the national governing bodies uh, and groups of athletes. And the reception was not welcomed by the administration. And that's when some of these subtle or not too subtle pressures really began to, to come down the USOC. You know, we were just so small by comparison with the organization now that uh, that we we simply were in the crosshairs day after day after day. And this meeting on April 12th, um, what what was to be decided there? Well, the administrative committee uh, had met, I think we met, did we meet in New York sometime between January and there? Much to my dismay at the New York Athletic Club, but at the time... Yeah. I was not yeah. welcome as a woman or a person of color. 
so I had to first throw a fit about that. So I'm sure that did not do me well for the rest of the discussions, but it was ridiculous to me that we didn't meet there. Anyway, we met again right before the April 12th meeting, uh, um, again like an executive board, which is what we were, and we again discussed what proposal to put before uh, the House of Delegates meeting, which again was the first time that this had happened. And we said, you know, we got to a point where it's straight up, yes or no. That would be the vote. And and boycott and, and there were athletes, athletes who were in favor of a boycott. Athletes who were opposed. Yeah. I mean, could you sense that it was? Right. Was it a close vote? No. Well, yeah, for me, it was a close vote, but uh, it was two to one, which isn't how you win an event. But uh, it, there was a lot of discussion. There was a lot of angst, and I will tell you. I guess it was something I said nuts. I was panicked my own self because I did not want to destroy the Olympic movement. It had become so precious to me that I didn't want to do anything that would harm in any way the Olympic movement in the United States of America. So that was another panic point for me, uh, to do it in a way that would not destroy this magnificent part of our lives. Um, but we were talking a lot. The AAC had had several meetings. We always meet before, at that point, we always had a meeting uh, the month before the full board met. And uh, so, and we'd been discussing this a lot. So finally, we were together. Mike, it was about uh, 50 members of the AAC, something like that, uh, on the Something board. like that. And they had the, uh, the, the governance body, it was called the House mm-hmm. of Delegates. And uh, you, you've been you've been with this uh, assignment and this beat for long. You can remember the gradual reduction and the the arguments over the size of the USOC board. The House of Delegates at that time was over six hundred men and women. It was huge. Uh, it made that morning at the Antlers Hotel even more chaotic. Yeah, and a lot of people had no idea why they were there. Most no. of them were there because they could afford to be there, and there weren't even numbers per sport. Uh, track and field had 10, aquatics had 10, rowing yeah. had 5, and everyone else had 5. So it was, like, it was a bizarre gathering of people who didn't know each other and probably only marginal information on what, why they had been brought together. It was truly the, uh, the volunteers. <laughs> The speeches uh, that morning were central to the outcome, although I think most people thought that the USOC would uh, would vote to uh, accept the president's demand. Um, president, Vice President Mondale uh, made uh, a compelling speech uh, out the situation politically and the Soviets and so forth and so on. And then uh, Bill Simon, William E. Simon, who was the treasurer of the USOC and a former secretary of the Treasury for administrations, gave a speech in which he challenged everyone in the room as Americans, as part of a patriotic organization, and basically said, how could you possibly um, say no to the request uh, based on national security by the president of the United States, and and Bill, in so many words, said, "No matter what you th- no matter what you think, you need to honor the office of the president of the United States," and they did. Oh, that's harsh, harsh, harsh. <laughs> uh, my my little speech probably wasn't compelling enough, but uh, I quoted Ben Franklin saying, "Those who would give up." Freedom for temporary security deserved neither, right? And that's what we were doing. We were, you know, we were. It, it, Mike hasn't explained how hard the White House leaned on sponsors, on people, on me. I, mean, I was getting death threats uh, practically every day, and weird phone calls and weird, weird visits. It was a frightening time. So I understand that people would say, okay, okay, let's do what the president asked. But if you understood how the Olympic movement works, that's exactly the wrong thing. 
to do. And the rest of the world, the 80 countries, by the way, we keep saying 60 countries didn't go. Well, until uh, we started counting, it didn't matter. A lot of countries never competed at the games before because they had to pay for everything. Right. It wasn't until after, after, with 84, things changed. So saying that, by the way, one of the countries who swore they wouldn't come was South Africa. South Africa was banned from competition at the Games and did not return until Barcelona. Anyhow, so there were lots of ridiculous things going on and being said, and at one point there was this notion that um, if we went to Moscow, our passports would be stripped. Well, that again, fortunately I was an attorney. You look at the law, that could only be done if someone went to a place where we were in war against so that was all these nonsensical things were out. So I understand, especially because these are folks who really didn't know what the Olympic movement was about. And most people don't. And Ed, Anita made a, a very, very important point. The Carter administration even stooped to the level of contacting our small family of official sponsors, asking them to withhold their their final payments to the USOC uh, until such time as we voted to uh, boycott the games. It it was it, it was it was really a frightening thing. And Anita talking about death threats and everything else. I can only imagine what she had to go through as, as she took her position. Was there division as a result of that? Was there um, some kind of cleft struck in the middle of the? of the athletes uh, in the United States as a, as a result of this? Well, um, I don't know about that. I remember 1980, 1980, telephones. Uh, there might have been, what was the other thing, uh, cables. <laughs> Faxes hadn't come in yet, so communication was limited. And usually the team didn't meet any other sports team until you were at the games. And so we didn't know who we were, except through the Athletes Advisory Council, which was magnificent. And that got word out, but not to everyone. I, I learned much later that there was a group out on the West Coast of track and field athletes who were fighting, but I didn't know it to communicate with them. And uh, so they kind of petered out, unfortunately. But I'm sure there are more stories than I could possibly know even. Oh, yeah. And, you know, Ed, it, 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 moving just a little bit ahead on this, we did go ahead uh, and finish selecting Olympic teams, uh, mm-hmm. Olympic trials and, and uh, camps, mm-hmm. and we did pick a team that would go to Moscow with our fingers crossed that something would break at the last minute and we would, we'd be able to go. So we did go through the process of actually picking an Olympic team, although the 466 members of that team uh, still are not recognized as an Olympic team, either by the USOC or the IOC. And there were divisions. There were athletes that spoke out, left camp. I remember uh, Nancy Lieberman, one of our greatest basketball players, left the basketball camp, um, made a statement in support of the boycott, and then she was replaced on the team by, by another young woman. But there, there was a lot of emotion and a lot of division and a lot of, uh, as Anita talked about, second mortgages and all these things. These were times when America, Americans, truly had a role in sending uh, our athletes to the games. Athletes from small communities here and there, from coast to coast, uh, their communities had uh, fundraising uh, events, bake sales, you name it, to get their young man or woman uh, to the Olympic trials, uh, and on and on. The level of support that the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, provided our athletes at the time was almost nil. That came much later. So, um, as Anita alluded to, we most athletes did not know what the USOC really was. And as she said very clearly, never met anybody from the USOC until they got into the athletes' village at the games. Anita, you were, you, you were selected for the, uh, for the 1980 team in rowing? 
And well, finally, our, uh, we have a camp, not trials. We have trials and a camp. We do everything the hardest way possible, I guess. And so I, I went through the camp. Well, that's why it's the noblest <laughs> it's of sports. Thank you for saying that. Uh, um, it, so we went through this grueling camp, and then, as is our tradition, one day the, the list of those who are on the team is like nailed up to the boathouse door and, and then read off, and so we went through that. And we actually had, uh, I had a dear friend um, decide not to be a member of the team on the day it was announced. And that was really hard. But so, you know, for me, the, the central thing I was working toward is to have the athlete whose life is involved make the decision. I didn't want to force people to go if they didn't want to go, but I wanted the basic notion of the athlete's right to compete observed. That was all. And the president couldn't decide, did nothing about my life competing or getting into the noblest of sports of any of that. It just... And, and there was no nexus for the president of the United States to say anything about the team, although clearly the presidents have all been delighted to welcome home the victors. And um, during one of the briefings at the White House, uh, briefings, I went through the door that had the whole wall of the 1980 Olympic winter team. They were our cousins, our, our twins. And we, as Mike said, we never existed. And that was the most painful thing of all. We knew we existed. And yet, I was watching maybe 12, 14 years later uh, at a USOC event, and they were talking about past games. And, you know, I still get goose pimples. You know, I know the stories very well. And this time, they, you know, celebrated the, the great hockey team and the Haydn family who were just tremendous on outdoor ice oh, yeah. speed skating yeah. and uh, both Beth and Eric and, and others. And then it jumped to what? What? Nothing that summer. No mention that there was a summer games. And it goes on till the next, basically, is winter games. Not a word. Nothing. Then I realized that we were truly the invisible team, the team with no result. What were they going to say? We paid yep. for a, a parade in Washington and paid for the picnic because the White House wouldn't pay for it. Gosh, that was exciting. And thank you, thank you, thank you forever, Levi's, for outfitting the team. You didn't have to, and you did. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, it, a guy who's a guy who's lives in, in Colorado Springs, uh, Baron Pittenger, who is mm-hmm. one of the finest uh, individuals to serve the U.S. Olympic Committee. He had moved the offices from New York City to Colorado Springs and set that up, and he put on the first national sports festival in the summer of '78. But the USOC, as Anita pointed out, we decided that we would take the team to Washington for several days. And we would entertain them with uh, concerts at the Kennedy Center, picnics, uh, boat rides, uh, museums, a little bit of everything, just to try to accept the swimming team, which is which decided to put on a meet at the exact time that the swimming meet was going on in uh, in uh, Moscow. But we spent money that we really didn't have uh, for the party in Washington, and um, it, it started it started in, on a rough basis. The president was going to greet the team on the steps of the Capitol. I think the date was something around the 30th of July, and I remember a testy meeting the evening before because athletes, the athletes had approached our leadership and had indicated that when the president appeared to take his position at the rostrum to address them, uh, they weren't going to stand. Uh, Mr. Simon spent a great number of, uh, of minutes the night before and got the athletes to, to uh, rethink their position on that. And so it was a sweltering morning on the Capitol steps when President Carter thanked the team for uh, refusing to go to Moscow and so, so forth and so on. There was, I remember, we, we had prepared some medals, uh, special commemorative medals, and we even had a special medal done by Tiffany's 
all of which we had to pay for, uh, that the athletes were presented with. Uh, and then, of course, we had the week of entertainment, and then we went to the airports, and the athletes took off, and the team that never was disbanded. Uh, more than 200, I think 219 men and women on that team, for various reasons, did not make the 1984 team. Therefore, their Olympic careers were destroyed. Yep, and most of them... Most of them didn't know that in order to be an Olympian, you had to compete at the Games. It wasn't. Right. I mean, for us, the big deal was to make the U.S. Olympic team, but that's not enough, unfortunately. Oh, by the way, my, my you know what, Mike, uh, um, I think you missed uh, the White House. We actually went to the White House, and there was a barbecue, which the USOC paid for. And, oh, yeah. Um, People were invited up to shake hands with the president. Oh, uh, yeah. And so on that. Got so that. that. Was, I really don't recall him talking to us on the Capitol steps. We stood there, I recall. But yeah. I thought we were, it was for pictures and stuff, and then we went to the White no, House. No, you're right. I forgot. We did go to the White House, and it got uh, – uh, I remember President Carter, his wife, and his daughter were on the uh, uh, on the uh, platform, and then the athletes would come up and – talk to them. And I, I remember hearing that some of the athletes had made some very pointed remarks towards the president that made it a very uncomfortable photo session. Yes, and I was not among them. I got ragged on for being there. And I told people, I'm not going to deny my parents an opportunity to meet the parents of other athletes or to go to the White House. They had fought for civil rights. Their parents had fought for civil rights, and there was no way I was going to deny them the opportunity of going to the White House. In the 40 years since, why hasn't the U.S. Olympic Committee been able to recognize the team of 1980? And does the IOC have any place extending that recognition as well? No, of course not the IOC. Why? Because the games went on. We could have been there. And in fact, my last attempt was when the team, the rowing team, was in uh, Germany, and we went to the charter again and found that if an athlete has a problem with the National Olympic Committee, their international federation can indeed uh, enter them into the game. And Tommy Keller was president then of these, uh, the International Rowing Federation. I said, yeah, he'd do it. I just needed to get a document which gave the names of the people who were on the U.S. Olympic rowing team. I could not get that from U.S. rowing. They refused. They claimed that no team had been selected. I knew better, but they just refused to do that. So that was our absolute last chance. And, and Ed, um, I didn't let this go. Um, several years ago, it might have been 2011 or 2012. I was writing a lot of commentaries from my office at the Sports Court. And I have a column that I wrote, a commentary at the time, about the Olympic team that never was. And I suggested that the U.S. Olympic Committee create an event in Washington, honor and celebrate the 466 men and women, uh, do something very special to uh, point to them that they had never been honored. There, the USOC had never put on any sort of celebration. Uh, I was called out by a person on the uh, PR staff who said, you don't understand. Um, you, you're, you, you were calling us out. When I said I wasn't calling you out, I was calling the organization, suggesting. Uh, I even went to the. I even went to the extreme. I suggested in this column that I wrote that the U.S. Olympic Committee put that team into the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame. Well, uh, it didn't go very well, and <laughs> grudgingly, I think at the Olympic Assembly that fall, I think the USOC invited three or four athletes from. The 84 or from the 80 team that didn't go uh, read a proclamation, let them sp uh, speak briefly, and that was the end of anything having to do with the 1980 Summer Olympic team in Olympic City, USA. 
Now, I should say, uh, as Anita knows, several of the sport governing bodies have had celebrations for their 80 team uh, with gymnastics. And, uh, there have been individual sport celebrations of those teams, but nothing by the mothership. Anita DeFrance, was this your first substantial involvement with an issue involving the IOC, this uh, boycott and the, uh, the debate? But yeah, but yes, but again, I was not IOC level. I was uh, rower level, and we communicated throughout the world. That's how I knew that the Europeans were going a- a- to compete under the Olympic flag and not embarrass the country. And had uh, the one regret is I never had a chance to speak with President Carter individually because I would have proposed that to him, um, that we do that like the Europeans were doing. So, but no, that didn't happen. Um, I think I've gotten off track of what your question was. I apologize. Well, I was wondering because six years later, you were a member of the IOC. Um, you were nominated after your work in Los Angeles at the uh, 84 Olympic Games. Um, yeah. Did, did, did you well, have an idea this is a, a, an organization you'd like to be working with? Well, I still did. There are two things. One, I actually was an award, awarded a medal in Moscow, so, but I didn't win it. I was awarded the medal of the Olympic Order, bronze medal of the Olympic Order. Um, and I had no idea what that was, when, where, why. But uh, the, in 1981, I came to Los Angeles to work for the LA Olympic Organizing Committee because I felt I needed to give back anything I could for the harm which I considered grievous harm the USOC tried to visit upon the Olympic movement. And um, that's when I started to understand more what the IOC was. But I think it was both my fight and the attention that it got outside of the U.S., not so much inside, um, and um, that came to the IOC's attention without me really knowing it. Boycotts weren't over in 1984, Los Angeles, the uh, payback. Soviets gave their their payback. Um, did it have any effect on the USOC in 1984, Mike? In a strange way, um, because the whole scenario of how LA kept the games has been told before. Uh, the USOC helped the. Uh, citizens of Los Angeles and the leadership of the LA organizing committee to make a proposal to the IOC that accepted to keep the games from being moved. There was some anger by the citizens out there. Anyway, um, what we did at the USOC to uh, be partners in this effort was to put up $25 million in the effort that I don't that we really had, but there was a contract that called at the end of the games for the U.S. Olympic Committee and the national governing bodies combined, I think to receive, and Anita could correct me, something like if there was an overage, a profit, as it, as it would be called, we would receive something in the neighborhood of 40% of such profits. Uh, there were individual splits for the governing bodies and then a, a figure for the U.S. Olympic Committee. And we created the U.S. Um, Olympic Foundation out of it, which put us in uh, a fairly good financial shape because we were almost broke after the uh, Moscow boycott. But Peter Ubroth and Anita and everyone out there uh, did such a wonderful job. Uh, John Argue, the, the great leaders of the of course, the U.S. team uh, won 174 medals. Uh, importantly, the television the television ratings were terrific, and ABC, which had paid something like 230 million dollars uh, for the broadcast rights, but had the option of reducing those if certain nations weren't there, did not take that uh, option and paid the full amount. So, in a financial way, the games became. Um, a settling uh, thing for the USOC and uh, uh, Peter Ubroth and 
and uh, his team had gone to great lengths. They had uh, they had got China to come. They had gotten Romania to come. The games were absolutely fabulous in every way, but it gave the USOC at least a head start on a, fin- a financial foundation for the future, uh, leading to President Samarank in getting all the nations in the world to come to Seoul in 1988. Uh, Anita, did you sense any hangover from the boycott in Los Angeles? Any difficulties that you uh, sensed on your end? No, um, oddly enough, L.A. truly is, is an Olympic city. Um, I was on the board of the uh, L.A. Olympic Organizing Committee until I became, <clears throat> until I became a, a staff member. So there is this base of people, in part because there's a group called the Southern California Committee for the Olympic Games that started up after 32 that was in place and continued uh, to excite and interest people in the games. And so, no, um, but then the actual games did something amazing because it brought the whole community together as though it was one city in ways it's hard to explain, and that feeling it's still around. But, well, I don't know. There was something else I wanted to say, but I'll let you ask the question, sir. Well, how did, how, how, how did the Olympics manage to move ahead since, since Los Angeles with no more boycotts? Uh, well, let's face it. Boycotts do exactly and only one thing. They hurt the athletes. It, over the years, boycotts have done nothing. Uh, to the games except hurt the athletes, period. So as we are able to say that, as more Olympians become IOC members, it becomes very clear what will and will not happen. And we now have ways, as we did then, uh, athletes competing on the Olympic flag to make sure that an athlete will have a chance to compete. Witness postponing the games. Never before has that happened. But nor could we go forward with the games given the world in pandemic but a lot of athletes including on the executive board of the IOC um, of the 15 eight are Olympians and the president and I both uh, suffered from the politics of 1980 so we know exactly how it feels and how we want to make sure athletes know we've got the back now you got to see President Carter Jimmy Carter I believe in Atlanta during the uh, 1996 Olympics. What was, what was that conversation like? Well, there were actually two. First, a friend of mine who has an enormous sense of humor <laughs> had a luncheon inviting the vice president, inviting President Carter, and inviting me. And uh, so everything was fine. Then <laughs> we get to the seating arrangements, and yes, at the end of the table is President Carter, and next to him is Anita de France for the whole luncheon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he spoke, spent most of the time speaking to the woman to his right, not to his left. And um, towards the end, I think we we're at, at dessert, he turned to me and said, Anita, when are you going to stop? beating up on me. <laughs> uh, sure, my eyebrows went up to the ceiling because here's the head of state, former head of state, asking when I'll stop beating him up. <laughs> Something you really don't want to have asked too loudly. Um, so I said, excuse me, sir? He says, you know, you just keep talking about 1980. And he went on and on and on and on and on. I said, and then he said, but by the way, it was unanimous. I said, no, sir, it was not unanimous in the Senate. There were four or six senators who were on our side and helped when I asked them to make sure a team would be selected. So they wouldn't oppose that. And then in the House, oh, that was, no, sir, it was not unanimous. So, well, in the uh, USOC executive, no, sir, it was not unanimous. It wasn't unanimous any place. And he kept trying to, well, now it's just a very naive attempt uh, of restructuring history as we see more recently, more elaborate attempts, but... No, that is not what happened. And the athletes could never get back what was taken from them, ever. So it's, it was not easy. Uh, but at the end of it, you know, we kind of, I said, you know, I voted for you anyhow. 
although it was really hard to do, but I did. And uh, then, as fate would have it, we both wound up at the same event later that day. It was diving, and I saw him sitting alone uh, on the far side there, and I said, okay, this is not a good optic. So I went over and sat with him and listened to him, and I got a rash of grief from my friends. (laughs) Diving was preliminary. Why is this such a big deal? But yeah, I'm sure I was. I was not only had already dying. Did he ever express any regrets? But edit. Nope, not to me. And I'd spoken with him uh, the year before. I had a a friend had set up a meeting where we all went, and and, you know he told me his history again. I started to tell mine, then the meeting had to end. So. No, not really. And um, he's a good man. I just never got why he, some people say I spent too much time in the submarine, but his worldview was one of working together. And yet this, what he did to a whole, whole generation of ambassadors was just opposite of what he seemed to believe. And, and interestingly enough, a group of 1980. Olympians, non-Olympians, mm-hmm. had something to do with an incident before the games. Um, <laughs> it became, uh, it was announced that, that Jimmy Carter was going to run the Olympic torch mm-hmm. as part of the torch relay through Plains, Georgia, his hometown. Well, to make a story short, some contact was made mm-hmm. by these athletes with Carter uh, staff in Plains, followed, I think, uh, about a day later by an announcement that he was not going to be able to run in uh, the torch relay uh, because of a previous commitment. Yeah, I think he had to be in uh, Canada or someplace. Uh, uh, yeah, you know? Or someplace, yes. So, and, and the, the only no thing I wrote, I wrote about it, Jeff Blatnick told me the story, which I've written mm-hmm. about. He ran into the president on a flight. Uh, and the president was making his way, talking to people. And uh, when he got to Jeff Blatnick, this, this was a flight somewhere in North Dakota for something. Um, mm-hmm. he, he shook hands with Jeff, and Jeff said, by the way, Mr. President, uh, uh, I was an Olympic athlete. And he went, oh, really? At Lake Placid, what sport did you participate in? You're an awfully large guy. And Jeff said, uh, Mr. President, I was a member of the 1980 U.S. Olympic team. And Carter responded and allegedly said to Jeff, that was a mistake. Wow. Is that the same as an apology? Uh, yeah, as much as, as much as he could muster at the time. Right before, right before the Atlanta Olympics, he did um, meet in a round table fashion at the Carter Center in Atlanta Um, and of course the question did come up about the Moscow boycott essentially he said uh, that was a devastating and tragic experience and I hope nothing like it ever happens again and then he went on to say I hope the end of the Cold War has ended any threat to the integrity of the Olympics and we, we, we did contact the Carter Center for any other more up-to-date comment from him or whether he wanted to join us for this conversation, but he is not doing many interviews these days. Many, many attempts were made by media, by journalists in the years following to get interviews with Lloyd Cutler, uh, and with other members of the uh, of the Carter administration that were heavily involved in this, and uh, all of them were either rejected immediately or deflected. So when I wrote about this, I had to go into the congressional records to find proof that they indeed had talked to our sponsors about withholding money and so forth, and the tax and the t- the uh, deduction for donations to the U.S. Olympic Committee. Um, it, 
I guess it was those were prehistoric dirty tricks. Uh, they might pale by comparison with what we see today, but nonetheless, it happened. Mm-hmm. But I, I just, Ed, I just hope that I'm going to see some sort of ceremony at some at some time in the future, as soon as possible, to bring as I've been talking with Edwin Moses a lot lately about an event that we're going to do, mm-hmm. and um, I've heard some terrible stories about some of the 80 Olympic athletes who actually suffered PTSD and illnesses and have never mm-hmm. recovered from from the blow of of not being able to participate in the Olympic Games. You know, people say, well, it was a sporting event and you've moved on and all that. This was a this was a immensely emotional moment for men and women who have never been able to let it go. Yeah, it's really hard to let go of well, something that people believe didn't happen. Boycotts couldn't stop the Olympics. It seemed something called the coronavirus will, or at least forcing a postponement of the games. Just to get your your reactions to to this postponement, first Mike Moran, someone who's been involved with preparation for plenty of Olympic games at the U.S. Olympic Committee. What's the idea? You know, how about four months well, before my, the game, my, a postponement? What kind of what kind of uh, monkey? Uh, 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 spanner in the in the works does that cause the the atmosphere the atmosphere is eerily uh, the same in in some cases between what happened with the eighty team and what happened with this team and I think often uh, about the athletes who had peaked like Anita uh, ready to go in Moscow and then denied the chance and and um, did not compete again for one reason or the other. And you look at this group of, of incredibly ta- talented American athletes, and I, I thought to myself, it's the same thing. They have done the same thing, and at the last minute, something unforeseen ended their dreams. Um, more will compete uh, in Tokyo next summer, God willing, because our teams are older now. They're better funded through various uh, uh, opportunities that didn't exist for the 80 team. Um, but I, I think of Simone Biles uh, was the first woman that I thought about, the first Olympian that I thought about, the, the, probably the greatest gymnast in the world. Uh a contender for you know all the medals in in uh, Tokyo, and he had trained hard and had gone through the the dysfunction of of the abuse uh, uh, situations, and was ready to really shine. And now her preparations must begin all over again. And just the challenge for Simone Biles and all these other athletes. And, of course, the same thing will happen to some of them. And I feel so badly for the ones that won't make that team next summer. Yeah, Anita de France, this is clearly one of the more extraordinary decisions you've had to make in your career as an IOC member, and you are currently a member of the, of the IOC executive board. How, how did you feel about the weight of this decision? Oh well, it was you know there there's having been a part of an organizing committee, I knew how challenging it would be to make this happen. Having been an athlete who was denied an opportunity to compete, I was going to do everything I could to provide athletes that opportunity to compete. So it wasn't I mean we knew we knew what the choices were, and it's kind of all or nothing. And so it wasn't hard once we had, there were a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings, a lot of meetings. And of course, uh, uh, Tokyo and Japan had to be in agreement before there could be an agreement. So once we had that, we knew we could go ahead with postponement. But as you say, we have no idea how that will affect the athletes. I feel for them. But here's the one thing that is immensely different. Different. 
one of the briefings I went to was at the State House, and there was the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, General Davy C. Jones, who is U.S. Air Force, and I said to him, please, I just have one question I need to have answered. Can you tell me, if our team does not go to Moscow, that at least one life will be saved? And he said, um, no, nope, he could not make that statement. This time, this time for the 2020 athletes, they know by not competing this summer, many thousands, if not millions of lives will be saved. So there's a reason this time. Last time, it was a joke. By June, the U.S. had started trading in wheat with with the Soviet Union, uh, June of 1980. It was a joke, except the joke was on the athletes. This time, they're doing something in service to all of humankind. Well, thank you very much. That was Anita de France, member of the IOC, and 40 years ago, a battler against the 1980 boycott of the Moscow Olympics. Thanks very much for joining us today, Anita. Well, it was a pleasure to be with people who cared about what happened 40 years ago. Well, we're glad to have your voices tell this this story. Mike Moran, former communications director for the U.S. Olympic Committee and a uh, eyewitness to this controversy as it wrestled with the boycott issue 40 years ago. Mike Moran, thank you for being with us today. Thanks, Ed. It's been a pleasure to be with you and Anita today. And this is and this is Ed Hula. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Around the Rings Radio. For more than 25 years, your best source of news about the Olympics is AroundTheRings.com. <laughs>